and welcome to episode 50 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. Today I'm very lucky to have Sam Chupp returning to the uh, Roleplay Studio. We're going to talk a little bit more about the second half, if you like, of the early days of White Wolf type stuff and then a few other uh, things will come up along the way. So hi Sam, how's it going? Hi Daniel, doing great. Excellent. So you had a, uh, a restful uh, Christmas period, holiday period? Sure. Sure did. I hope you did too. Yeah, oh yeah. We uh, we mostly hung around the house here and uh, did a little bit of this and a little bit of uh, that. But I often find that's the most sort of relaxing holiday. But one, we we got into a few games here. I don't, you were one of the uh, people suggesting stuff for the for the uh, for holiday gifts and stuff like that. And we um, a couple of people suggested uh, Dixit, and so we uh, we got into we got into that. And um, also mm. my uh, my son. Uh, we had a little bit of a go at Dungeons and Dragons there. He's only eight, so I'm not entirely sure, you know, if that's the, the quote unquote right age to us. I don't know if there is necessarily <laughs> a right age, but but that's something that uh, that you're into as well, isn't it? Like advocacy of uh, of kids' games and so forth. So, right. I mean, uh, I've been doing uh, that kind of advocacy for over ten years. I, I started right. the the kids dash RPG mailing list back before, you know, back when mailing lists were like the main thing like there was no google groups there was no you know there was very there was no facebook uh it was and so back in the day in those days we had to <laughs> we had to get our mail and read it right oh my um, goodness Shocking. yeah um but you know we have a i have a it's still going today i still have people joining uh kids rpg and there's a i'll, I'll provide you with a link in the show notes sure. so that people can join basically um what we've managed to do over the course of the year is just have a huge backlog of questions answered about kids and gaming. Right. When I started it, it was a very, it was like an unheard of thing. People just didn't play with kids. Like they didn't run games for kids. Hmm. Um, and the uh, marketplace did not, had not responded to that um, hmm. at all. Like right. there was, there was no, you know, purpose built kids game out there like you know right. so and since then there have been a lot of purpose-built kids games um you know uh the prince's kingdom um uh, uh fairy's tale uh, a whole bunch of games out there right now mm. that and and you know we just heard um from the fake core people that they're coming out with young centurions which right. is their scaled down uh fate uh light version mm. uh and they're going to have an accompanied young adult novel. So nice. You know, this so kind of thing. Sally, she's Sally. Sally Slick. Sally Slick. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. She's the designer of the first jet engine. That's mm, uh, right. So, you know, she's a centurion, and she's uh, a cool mechanic uh, a girl. Mm. Um, part and parcel of my advocacy with kid, for kids in gaming is, is girls specifically young mm. girls in gaming yeah. because, um, so often, uh, when I was growing up, I noticed that my friends, uh, little sisters were very rarely invited to play. Right. Um, and you know, I recognized as time went on, I've heard from so many different women, uh, that you know they haven't never been they were they were never invited to play or if they were invited to play they were told what to do and, mm. and you know they, they they were pretty much put in a straitjacket. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so you know I I look at that the same way. So mm. you know 
what we do at Kids RPGs, we talk about kids and gaming. But, you know, right now there's so – I mean, it's like the marketplace has woken up and they've said, oh, yes, the kids need to be – need to have games. And, like, yes. there are people all over the world making kids games. Yeah, I think the last one that I saw um, most recently, Graham uh, – can't remember his last name, but he, he has a Hero Kids game. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean – Obviously, you can take any game and run it with for kids. Dungeons and Dragons is a pretty good game for the eight, nine, ten-year-olds mm. who are reading. Yes. Who are you know? Kids are information sponges. They they take lore, bodies of lore, and they suck it up and they completely understand it. They they mm. they pour over it in their minds. I mean, if, if you've ever sat down with somebody, uh, a kid who who's played Pokemon, for example, right. or Magic the Gathering, they know. Everything about that game, it's yes. just it, it's because their minds are set up so that they're soaking up the information. So, you know, it is you might think, okay, D and D is a bit, you know, too advanced. Well, actually, no. There's so much lore in D and D. There's so much body of system in D and D that mm. it, it does soak up. It yeah, soaks yeah. things up. Um, sure. And I remember seeing it might have been from you or from Meg Baker or perhaps even both. But there's a chap who. Um, I think it was a chap who sort of rewrote player characters for kids to use in Dungeons and Dragons. I don't remember the exact details of it, but um, well, my kids got interested in Dungeons and Dragons when uh, uh, Wizard of the Coast came out with the um, that really pretty uh, character builder uh, software, right? Yes, uh, that they provided on uh, CDs on mm. the, in the player's handbook, right? And when they started, you know. At first, they were like completely not interested. But then, when we started showing them that you could build a character in this particular computer program, hmm. then it became cool because it's almost like a video game. Right. Um, and I think that's in large part why D and D four is the way it is. Is, right. is that it has that sort of video game quality to it? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that if I were being asked to take a new group of kids in and play D and D for the first time, I might consider running D and D Fourth Edition because it is very simple, very straightforward kind of. You know, you don't have to memorize lists of spells. You can sit down and you can, you know, you have all right. these powers that are. I mean, everybody has something they can always do, and that's, you know, character and player agency is very important. So yeah, oh, absolutely. I think the. Um there's one thing that they have is the, uh, the the Monster Slayers adventure that they had for fourth edition, is a uh, is one of the Dungeons and Dragons uh, supplements that were that was released, sort of designed to be for for kids six and up or, or something like that. But I'm still struggling to remember the name of the of the chap that sort of that did the rewriting. So mm. check in the check in the show notes for that, or um, or if you know Meg Baker, um, write her on on right. G plus. Oh, um, Meg. Meg is awesome. I, I, I love pretty much everything I've read from her. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, um, so there's lots of opportunity for, for kids to get into, um, into, into gaming, and I think that, that quite apart from any entertainment value that it might, um, that there might be, there's also quite a few other skills that sort of go along with it, right? Like they've got their math skills for working stuff out and you know, reading skills. They've got to work together with other people. You know, there's, there's a lot of different advantages to gaming which are not necessarily available whole cloth from any other past i mean even reading is is passive i mean sure there's imagination involved but there's no um there's not really much that the kid can do with the story i mean aside from choose your own adventure i suppose 
Well, sh- sure. I mean, thing of it is, I've had several success stories happen where, you know, like one of my players, back when I was running games for kids on a regular basis, one of my players had a hard time reading, had a hard, had an even worse time writing. Mm. I offered experience point bonuses to people who would bring me little journals right. about their character's past, nice. which would then help me, you know, fill out their character, but also it encouraged them to write. They would write these up and bring them to me, and I would, I would like, yeah, you know, I would give them the experience points, and suddenly, you know, this fellow who was really shy about writing anything started writing more and more stuff, and he had he had something for me almost every session. Right. Um, and his character kind of had the benefit for that, but that's okay because ultimately it was getting him into that. And um, I had also a situation with my stepdaughter who, you know, she will never again forget to get a receipt when she gives somebody money because mm. one of her... One of her characters, uh, a thief, was uh, taken advantage of by the system uh, oh. when she gave she was paying somebody else's taxes uh, to open up a to reopen a shop that had been closed down, mm-hmm. and she'd she'd spent a lot of time and effort getting this money together, right. and then when she paid the money uh, and walked away, she said, um, "So wait a second, are you going to you know are you going to free the money up? Are you going to free the the lien up and let this person operate now?" And she and the uh, city hall guy said. What do you mean? I've never seen you before in my life. Oh, right, nice. And yeah. she's and she's like, what? <laughs> and so from it's became, it became a joke at our house, but that's exactly what it is. Mm. Uh, she will never again forget to, to ask for a receipt. Yeah, there you go. Well, listen, listen, learn for sure. That, that's brilliant. I've uh, managed to track down um, at jamesstow.blogspot.com, uh, I suppose it would be, and he's got a post here from September in 2011, and as it, as it turns out, quite coincidentally, it's talking about D&D for, uh, for eight-year-olds. So what he's done is, um, and he's got D&D for uh, dads and girls and so forth, but um, if you go there, cool. as I say, jamesstow, J-A-M-E-S-S-T-O-W-E.blogspot.com, uh, dot com and then you you do a search for um for D and D um just D N D within his thing you'll probably find it and he's got a, a a chap there who looks like a barbarian of some kind they've got athletics endurance and intimidate some hit points and speed and so forth but basically a whole bunch of what a, essentially I would imagine would would be tantamount to uh, to shticks yeah he put it into some common language I like that. Um, as we get the second and third generation gamers coming up, um, you know, from my generation, counting down from my generation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we start to have, uh, you know, a, a deeper, more interesting role-playing, you know, tradition. Right. Um, ultimately, this is what we need to do as members of the gaming community to make sure that there is a marketplace for games in the mm. future, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that um, I think that because it's a relatively fringe um, pastime, mm-hmm. if you don't, if you're not passing it on to your kids and, and sort of trying to spread it, and I'm not suggesting you force your kids to play Dungeons and Dragons at all, but if they show interest, they may well do it. There's a lot of things to be interested in um, about it that you know that eight year olds and, and stuff and so forth are uh, are interested in. But you know, passing yeah. that stuff on, I think, is is important not only for um, you know, for connecting with your kids in a way that's important to you. I mean, liking football and then passing that love of football onto your kids is no different, at least not not in my uh, mm-hmm. opinion. That's right. That's right. Then, uh, and you can do both. But, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about um, really is I never actually force my kids to play. In no. fact, 
I made it I made it into sort of a thing where it was kind of a reward. You know, mm. if we get everything done and if you get ready for bed, we'll play a couple of hours of D and D or mm. whatever. Right. And that that's what motivated them. That you know, they they would get they would do a lot of things just to be able to play. Right. Um, and that was great. I mean having and also it, it enabled them to have a peer group, um, a small group of closely held friends who had shared language, they had shared experience, they had mm-hmm. shared community that was something that was not very common among the among their, you know, their peers at school. Right. You know, they the they they just I mean because these people would come, they would come over to my come over to our house. They'd spend, you know, ten hours, sometimes ten hours a week mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. over at our house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just gaming and play, you know, continuing to to develop their characters. So right, yeah. Well, and uh, and all of the stuff that kind of goes along with it. Plus, also, you know, you got your kids in a, in a safe place too, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. you, know, you know where they are, yeah. what the yeah, what's going on, and yeah. got to teach some you know interpersonal skills, and it, it, it's just a very rich experience for sure. So, would you say? Uh, or at least in your experience, what do you think is the is the best place to start if you think that you know your kids might be interested in role playing or they've shown interest in your game of let's just say for example, uh, cult or something like that, and maybe you figure that's not quite right for for eight year olds. Would you say Dungeons and Dragons is the best place to start, or you know it's not really the best place, the best place, but ultimately there's this thing that happens where you know if a child sees daddy and mommy playing a game. And they can't play that same game with them mm. or a game like that, yes. then it they know that they're missing out on something. Right, sure. You know? um, but what I did is from a very young age, uh, I started I started my kids early by telling them somewhat interactive nighttime bedtime stories. So I would say, you know, I would talk to, talk about these characters in the story, and they and then I would give them like little. Sometimes I would give them little decision points, or I'd say, okay, well, what do you think this character should do? Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, you know, we need to go back to here, or let's go this way, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was a sort of meta-gaming, you know, meta-role-playing for right. a little bit. But then when it was time for them to actually play a real role-playing game, they really wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons and nothing else would do. Right, sure. But that doesn't mean that it... Because they saw all these adults playing... Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Um, if we had had a household full of indie game players, for example, mm-hmm. then we could have we could have easily you know got them to play a little bit more of an appropriate indie game than than uh, rather than you know maybe some of the, the darker or or. But I, I will say that Vampire was something that my kids longed to play, like you know like it was the best candy in on the shelf in the mm. in the candy store. Yes. They wanted to play that game so badly. Yes. Um and it was like this rite of passage for them when they finally got, you know, to be teenage kids yes. and they wanted to play and they came over to the house and we played. Mm-hmm. Uh it was like a big deal for all of them and we actually watched pulp fiction that night too. The first right? time. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. But, I mean that's the, that's what when you got teenage gamers it's time to that's take right. it up a little. Uh, take, take it up a level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's a, uh, you know, what a what a heady mix there. Vampire the yeah, Masquerade was, and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the reason I showed them Pulp Fiction is because there was a character, one of the characters frenzied and killed somebody. Right. And I was trying not to be too bloody in this particular game because these are my kids. Right. But this is vampire. What are you going to do? Yep. So he frenzied, he killed somebody in a dorm room, and then... 
like he had to call the prince and say of the city and say, um, uh, I had a problem. <laughs> yeah. And so the prince sends Mr. Wolf, a ghoul, right, to help them with the problem. Right. Nice. And uh, I got to play Mr. Wolf, you know, pretty pleased with sugar on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Nice. Nice. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I bet. Um, and getting getting them, you know, and really, I enjoyed really harping on the fact that you killed somebody and there's a dead body there. Mm, and you have right. to deal with this dead body. Yes. And it's gross. And yes, it's icky and disgusting. And isn't being a vampire so incredibly wonderful? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's it's um. And I guess you know if we want to look for a teachable moment in there, which uh, I don't think anybody would necessarily desire to. But I suppose that Dungeons and Dragons or or like Vampire or whatever it is that you're playing, there's also the opportunity to teach actions and consequences without actually forcing your kid mm-hmm. to. We're not forcing them, but your kid being in an unfortunate situation where they actually have to learn firsthand about that. It's sort of, um, you know, the role-playing in the sense of, um, of you know, sometimes the kids do that at school, right? Like we want to role-play the situation right. where, there's a, where there's a drunk driver who, who uh, wants to drive home and, and you have to try and convince them not to drive home. Now, in a, in a classroom right. situation, it's just like how lame, right? But you can do similar sort of stuff, I guess, uh, in, in role-playing, which I hadn't sort of considered before. Well, you can, um, you know, I call them special moments. I mean, you can do that. It, it, you have to be very subtle about it or mm. kids will turn off and right, not yeah. even listen to you. There was a situation where um, one of my children uh, refu- was playing a cleric and refused to heal people, just didn't mm. want to do it, just got this sort of imp of the perverse attacking um, the, this child. And right. so she didn't want to heal anybody. And so, you know, she got banished to an island for right. the rest of the game by her high priest because she wasn't doing her job. Right. And, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't trying to overly punish her, but I was trying to, re- like, show her that, you know, no, this is not like a, a wizard with a spell. This is an actual religion that mm. you're a part of, and you can't just not heal somebody just because you don't like them or you're upset or you're you're feeling peaked or whatever. You mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have to fulfill your role. Right. Um and that, you know, that was it, it did not sit well with her. But right. then we switched uh, we switched characters on her with her later on and gave her more of a touristy kind of character that she could fly around and be with people and then like if she wanted to get up and walk around, she could do that. Right, sure. Um, so you got to really come to where the kids are. Mm. Um, you know, if there's a kid who wants to be involved, but really you start to suspect that they're more of a social gamer than anything else, right. you got to you got to roll with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. Already, I've got a uh, a pretty uh, well uh, a new appreciation, I suppose, for you know the sort of things that I couldn't even do with uh, with my son. As I say, he's uh, he's eight year old, so. So I can yeah. um, I'll go and dig out some of those characters here, and then I'll uh, give them a go. I'm not sure how many of his friends are are interested, but that's the other that's the other, sort of the flip side of that is if the friends are are playing too, um, like you right. would never you would never hesitate to play a game of say for example Monopoly. Like if the kids wanted to play Monopoly, you'd say yeah sure I'll play right. Monopoly with you. You wouldn't even sort of think about talking to the parents. But do you have a responsibility to? Uh, one of your kids' friends' parents to say, you know, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. Are you okay with that, or do you just do it and then and then apologize later on? I mean, you know, ultimately, at one point in time, I would have, but these days, when we have, you know, I mean, 
World of Warcraft is already known. Um, you know, I I don't. I mean, I guess you really have to read your situation yourself. But oh, of course, to, to to a certain extent, unless I knew that the parents were particularly fundamentalists, you know, with a very strict household, uh, I would probably be. I would probably just say, you know, I, I mean, I might I might also talk to the parents when they come to pick the child up. Mm-hmm. Yep. By the way, we. Had a great day playing Dungeons and Dragons, and we enjoyed it. And you yes. should get you should get Charlie to tell you about his barbarian thief. You right, know. sure, yeah. Um, you know that might be a good idea. Um, yeah, right. Be, yep. So you know, you, I think a lot of times parents respond to what you feel about something, and if you oh, clearly yeah, sure. you're not doing anything wrong, they're not going to be upset about no, it. No, no, sure, no, I, um, understood. Yeah, you don't want to go apologetically yeah. and say, well, you know, you know, we we might have played, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe just like when well, you know, we played Dungeons and Dragons. Now, what are you gonna now do? you know, uh, if I said, I don't think they would like it if, if they came back and said, you know, well, you know, Sally played Vampire the Masquerade today, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> underage. That would not be good. Yeah. But, you know, uh, life goes on. Yeah. Do you, is there a uh, rating system on role-playing games? I never actually even No, there really that. isn't. There really isn't. Although, you know, it's pretty easy to talk about lines and veils, and I still talk talk about lines and veils when I'm gaming with kids, especially when I'm gaming with kids, and because because there's this thing I call the Lord of the Flies impulse, hmm. uh, where young uh, young guys and girls get together, they they get kind of because it's a game and because they're playing around, they can get kind of off the deep end, like. Yes. You know, I don't allow cannibalism. I don't allow. You know, <laughs> I don't allow. You know, uh, disgusting cruelty. I don't. Yes. You know, in my games, it, it's. You know, I will put a line down there or draw yes. a veil over the scene. Yes. Um, my. Um, you know, I don't like wanton slaughter. No, uh, sure. Although that's, you know, that's the staple for many D and D games. Yes. Um, it's what I try to. What I try to say to them, like I, I would do, th- I would do terrible things, uh, like, uh, you know, have a, they, they go and they surprise a group of orcs and they kill a bunch of them, and then they hear this sort of whimpering sound and they go underneath the, the rock and there's this little baby orc there going, you killed my mommy, yeah, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> it's like. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, and like after that, they would just be like, "Okay, let's just put them to sleep and get around and yeah, walk right. around yeah. them." Yeah, and, that's right. And I, you know, just trying to reinforce that you, you know, when we're killing people, you're that's it. You're taking away all their possibilities. There. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I have in Victoria. Actually, is this is the mechanic that when you are uh, when you are, are battling somebody, then you the the contest goes until one person is best to the other, but it's the default is not that somebody is killed. That becomes a conscious choice. Like you've got them mm-hmm. at your mercy, and then you actually have to literally make that make that choice of what it is that you're going to do, rather than just them running out of hit points. And the next thing you know, they're uh, they're dead. So that was one of the things that I wanted to sort of address to encourage people to consider the consequences of their uh, of of their actions. It wasn't a moral play so much as a um, an indictment on the fact that you know there was that right around the start of the Victorian period there was such a thing as a competent police force, right? Mm-hmm. And and killing people, you know, today you can't just just do it and and and, and nothing happens. So that was why I had, had put that in. But going back to one other thing that you had mentioned, which was regarding you know 
things that, that kids do, you know, with the Lord of the Flies syndrome, as you called it. Would you allow kids to play any alignment? And uh, if, if not, what restrictions would you place on them? Yeah, I, what I typically do is describe the evil alignments as being selfish. Right. Um, you know, I actually quite like the alignment system in um, the Palladium fantasy role-playing game because it talks a lot more about what the motivations are for the for the individual character. Um, but, you know, I also let them know that if they choose to play evil, if they're really fixated on playing an evil character, that there's a lot of people who will sense their evil, right. you know, that they're they're going to draw attention to themselves in certain areas and certain things are going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even if they play an evil character, there's a certain point where they reach, they're going to reach a boundary with mm. me where I say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I can't let this happen in context of the story. It's mm-hmm. not, it'll take it out of a PG rating story yes. into something that's a little less, you know, PG 13 or R. Mm. And I'm just not interested. No, so we're sure. not going, we're not going there. It's right. just, um, and I don't have a problem with that as a parent. I don't have a problem with that. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, if they were adults, it's a different story. But mm. um, I also let them know that, you know, evil characters don't trust each other. Yes. And that trust is very important inside of a game. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I try to I try to give them, you know, that sort of sense. Um, plus, there's also the fact that. I don't have a detect alignment in my game in my D and D game. I tend to do a religious based sense for the person who's doing the moral sensing. So, like if you're if you're a paladin of the goddess of healing, you can sense the life force of the people around you. Right. So, if someone's sick, you can sense that they're sick. If someone's poisoned. You know, you can sense that, but you can't, or if someone's a murderer, you can sense that. Right. Uh, they've got blood, literal blood on their hands, as mm. it were. Right. Um, the, the goddess of justice provides the sense of justice where, you know, you're, you, are you a criminal? Have you broken the law re- mm. recently? Well, right. then it starts to look like that to the person. Mm. And as you go along, you can ask questions about that. But I, I don't, so I don't do like detect good, detect evil. Mm. Uh, it's detect what my alignment provides or what my religion provides me with. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, always something that I found difficult about Dungeons and Dragons starting out is, you know, what the correct, well, not correct, but what, you know, an appropriate alignment was to be because they didn't really get a good feeling for, you know, what the different lines would, would, alignments would mean in game terms. And I don't think I ever played a character that was anything, um, anything more, um, I think, chaotic good. Probably as far mm-hmm. as I went, or even maybe right. neutral if I played a, a druid, but I never went to evil anything. And I and I did you play any uh, any games with with evil characters? And if so, how did that? How did they reconcile um, the evil tendencies with team play or group play? When I play um, back in the day, when I was running lots of D anD D as a as a teenager um, or as a, a young adult, I had. Uh, a few people who would play some evil characters, but, mm-hmm. um, and they, the, the thing of it is, even though they said they were evil, they acted most of the time neutral evil. Right. You know? And, and, and really it was more that they would, they, they, they were antisocial and they were 
anti-heroes. Mm. Um, and they pretty much wanted that option to be evil so they could just kill anybody they wanted or right. do anything they want or steal from anybody they wanted. Right. Um, and they didn't, that's why they wanted to be that. And I, and still back then, even I would like remind them that, you know, there's a lot of people out there, you know, like merchants and would have a, you know, might have something in on their desk that detects evil mm-hmm. or that, you know, detects, you know, detects uh, a, like that goddess of justice I was talking about would have, yes. You know, they would have something that would glow whenever a thief came in. Right. You know? And, that, <laughs> you know, it's like if you have that, if you have access to something like that, yes. why wouldn't you have it? Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's good business sense, really, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so the reason I was uh, sort of going into alignment a little bit there is I wanted to talk a little bit how that related to um, the vampire system for for humanity, because one of the things that I read in a dragon, I think it was magazine, was this keeping track of people's shifts in alignment. And when it came to vampire, there was that um, almost um, it, the humanity wasn't exactly in alignment, but it, it had a lot of the same sort of flavors as the as the vampire descended into complete bestiality. And was that uh, was I reading that rightly, or am I on the wrong track altogether there? Yeah, no, you were. I mean, the thing of it is, that's what it's supposed to do. It's a fig leaf for, uh, in my opinion, it's a designed fig leaf for what it was supposed to do. Right. Uh, if you talk about system matters stuff, mm-hmm. it, was it a system that actually rewarded behavior or not? Probably mm-hmm. not. Yes. Because, um, you know, what happens with humanity is that you lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting it back is almost impossible, if not impossible. Right. And then, so you're on this downward spiral, and then once you lose a certain amount of humanity, you're really not motivated to, to keep your humanity at all. Yes. There's nothing that, there's no reason in the game to, there's no, nothing reinforcing keeping your humanity, except that, you know, people look at the humanity stat and say, wow, I don't have very much humanity left. Right. But that, I mean, that, and there's also like a friends. I think it's something about frenzy uh, mm-hmm. in there somewhere. Yes. But ultimately, it's it. Let's just be honest here. It did not tie into enough subsystems in the game, like to represent that. Right. Uh, compare that to Pendragon. Yes. Which where if you want the Christian bonus for armor, mm-hmm. you have there are a number of virtues on your personality traits list that are underlined as a Christian. And if, if those virtues are not um, high enough, mm-hmm. you, don't get, you don't get the bonus. And right. you, get, you get the virtue by acting that way and receiving a check so that when you check to see if your stats change at the end of the session, right. that, that stat goes up or down. Right. Um, and and it's a continuum. So like chaste and lustful are like is one are, are two. It's a pair personality trait pair. Mm-hmm. So like if your chaste goes down, your lustful goes up. Right. Um, and the same thing for Justin and uh, I can't remember the other just uh, opposite of just. I think is is uh, unjust. Some no. Well, no. <laughs> it's more like a random. I mean, it's more. I can't sure. remember what it's called. A cruel and merciful. Um, and so forth, right. uh, val- valorous and cowardly. Um, so, ultimately, um, there are reasons why you would want to play 
a chased character. You want you'd want to be chased in game. If you hmm. want to get that armor bonus, you have to right. say no to the to the comely maid who's asking you to go walking in the garden with her. Right. Sure. Um, and if you don't, or if, for example, the uh, the um, uh, storyteller says, uh, the game master says uh, in Pendragon says, "Look, I want you to make a, a lustful roll to see if this person's inflamed your lust." Uh, you know, then you might have to go with her. Right. Um, yes. You know, so, I mean, that's that is what I would call a system-based alignment, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, system. Yes. Uh, the vampire system got to a point where I mean, it just it was kind of a fig leaf. Yes. Yep. Sure. All right. Well, we're talking a little bit about uh, vampire there. So, for those that didn't listen to Sam's previous episode. Um, Sam was one of the writers with White Wolf um, through to to Wraith, where at Wraith and then Changeling, where you were one of the the co de, uh, chief designers, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, and so previously when we spoke, we got as far as uh, Wraith. Well, right up to the to, to the precipice of Wraith, I suppose you might you mm-hmm. might say if you wanted to be dramatic. But um, yeah, so vampire, then then werewolf, and then. Um, Mage, the Ascension, which you talk about, and then and then Wraith. So, how did uh, how did Wraith come to be? Was it in development uh, or throughout, or was it uh, something that uh, were you there for the genesis of the idea? Well, back when Vampire was first put out, there was a page in the back of Vampire that said "coming soon," and it listed a bunch of games. Right. Okay. Werewolf, Wizard. I think it was he called it Wizard, not Mage. Right. Um, Ghost and Fairy. Right. Okay. Um, and that's in, like, if you look at some of the old vampire books, vampires, uh, first editions, yes. you'll see that ad. Mm. Um, it was a very bold sort of announced, these are our games for the next five years. Right. But that's what happened. Yes. Now, the order was supposed to be uh, vampire, werewolf, mage, uh, vampire, werewolf, wizard, fairy, ghost was the last one. Right. But, um, you know, when it came time, when mage was done... Mark really wanted to do Ghost, wanted right. to do Wraith. Right. And um, Mark had uh, been sitting on an idea for the longest time, something called, called Inferno. Right. Um, Inferno was a game where you started out in hell. Right. And you role-played in the landscape of hell. And uh, he had playstormed that a couple of times in various p- parts of his co- gaming career. And he... You know, it was essentially like a torturous experience in the guy's role-playing mm-hmm. experience. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it, uh, designed so that you realize there's no hope, you know, mm-hmm. over and over again. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of like part of where he was going with this. And the other part was... Um, you know, he liked the whole idea of the Roman legions of of, of the afterlife, and mm-hmm. uh, but you know, we had we were sort of open ended when we started out with Wraith. We got a bunch of people. We we basically sent our feelers out to all our freelancers, and we asked them, "What do you think about Wraith?" Right. And we got a lot of stuff back from a lot of different people. Right. Um, and back that at that time, I was an assistant creative director, as well as a writer for the game and a designer on the game. Right. So I was sort of coordinating all this sort of random input from different people. Right. 
Um, and there was a, there's a, all the people who are design contributors on Wraith first edition are those people. So if right. you go back and look at all those that list. Yes. But we came up with um, you know a bunch of sort of vague general ideas. Right. Um, we had some. We went. We would go walking. In uh, at that point in time, we were living. Uh, we were working in in this office warehouse combination. And right. there was a cemetery not far from the back of that office warehouse. So we would right. go and walk in the cemetery and yes. talk about Wraith, me right. and Mark. We'd go to Denny's and sit and talk about Wraith. And we'd go to his house and sit and yes. talk about Wraith. Yes. And, uh, the know. Mark that, uh, that Sam is talking about here is uh, Mark Reinhagen, who is the founder of White Wolf. Well, he was, he's one of the two founders, yeah. Yes. Stuart Wick and, yes. Mark, and, and then Stuart's brother, Steve. Yes. Um, they were all basically um, sort of the triumvirate of, but I mean, first Stuart and Mark and then Steve came on a little bit later. Yes. And the we we'd, we'd hang out with Mark. Mark would have some people over. Uh, Ray Winninger came to visit, and we we talked a lot about Wraith with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Mark had to go to Brazil. Right. And we had sort of a a very rough first draft. Uh, at that point. Right. Uh, of race, right? Um, but we, uh, and I think at that point in time, we'd been able to send it out to play testers, um, sort of a rough first draft play test, right? Um, and we knew that Wraith would work as a game when Crow, the Crow came out, right? Um, we were a lot of people say, "Oh, you just all you guys did was take the Crow and make it into a game." We didn't even know the Crow existed. Yes. Until it came out, and then when it did come out, we went to the, to the movie to see it. We were like, "Oh, okay, you know, there is such a thing as parallel development." Yes. Um, so yeah, uh, then we hired we hired Jennifer Hartshorn, who was just out of college, who came to vi- came to live in Atlanta, um, and I switched switched from going to Mark's house to. Hanging out with Jen all day, pretty much every right. single day. I would show up at like eight in the, in the morning, and then leave sometimes eight or nine at night. Right. Uh, and we would sit and go over every aspect of the text that we had, right. and rewrite everything. Right. We redesigned and rewrote everything, and worked to try and make it all fit and hold together. Right. Because um, I'll tell you, it didn't. Right. <laughs> for a while, for a long time. Right. See, the thing about the thing about Wraith is it could have at one point in time it could have worked without any guilds or splats of any kind. Right. I mean, there was a point at which, you know, the guilds and splats and things like that were completely, you know, they were like a vestigial thumb. They really were. They mm-hmm. they didn't have any purpose or meaning. Mm-hmm. Um because the horror in the game uh, revolved around the the rubric of the shadow, right? Uh, and it revolved around the fact that you started the game dead, right? I mean, and pretty much everything else was icing, you know. Yes. Uh, so, so what do you mean by splats, there, Sam? Oh, by splats, I mean like the clans, tribes. You know, the the kith, the 
the the basically I mean let's just be honest what those things are are designed to create methods for a game company to put out more supplements based on that you know character type right sure um, and the white wolf games are famous for having this in them like the the fact that the clans were such a big deal right uh to start out with vampire mm-hmm. uh you know and it didn't actually get made a big deal until the clan books started coming out right um or actually really until the player's guide right. and so the player's guide came out and we offered a bunch more clans to play and then the clan books started coming out and then we had werewolf and it had tribes so there's clans and tribes and then mage had traditions yes. and you know conventions and then you know so people were wondering like what is that going to be for wraiths and it right. turned out it was going to be guilds right but still in this to this day i mean a guild is all all a guild is is what your character can do like what power that character has mm-hmm. you know it it it's not like you get initiate. I mean, at least I haven't. I have not played Wraith in a while. But when I played Wraith, you know, very rarely was there a guild, like a guild house, a guild meeting, a guild master, a guild apprentice. You know, right. it was just you know the the guilds were, you know, fairly irrelevant for me in my stories. Right. Um, most of the time, people just had various talents and I mean various arc- arcanos in mm. in their ca- their character and that's what it was. Right. But you know they came they did eventually come out with guild books and I um I have not I've only read one of those guild books. Right. But I was a I, I liked them. I thought they were they helped add um something to the game. I think that that's part of what it I mean if you think about what makes money in the gaming business things that are a- aimed at players make more money than things that are aimed at storytellers or GMs. Yes. Um, so you want to have more things aimed at players. That's yes. that's what you want in a, any kind of game. Mm. And so, you know, the best of those books, those clan books or whatever you want to call them, would show you a way to play that clan in a way that you'd never even considered before. Mm. Yes. Um, so that's that's what we do. And you've brushed over it, but that's, this is the th- the the, um, the thing that I've been talking about a lot since uh, since I, I started uh, doing Penny Red, and I'm that's why I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Is I wanted to ask you about the shadow and and how you <laughs> feel that that part of the game relates to what we've seen happening in um, indie gaming. Well, and that's that is a very interesting thing. This, it, it, from a from a system matters point of view, and I think Wraith definitely rings that bell. Yes. Um, because finally we have it's not just some random thing where the storyteller is encouraged to do something to you from time to time. You actually have another person in your gaming group whose job it is to occasionally turn to you and say, "Would you like a few extra dice to do this?" And if you do, you know take those dice then you're beholden to the shadow for that you know and it's it's a it's a mechanic that actually works to um reflect what happens in the course of play and and what happens in the course of story right 
Okay, let's no. lay a little foundation here just for somebody that hasn't paid, played Wraith. And please correct mm. me if I'm wrong. Uh, if I'm wrong here, Sam. But in Wraith, like the other storytellers uh, games, you know, you've got a character and they've got a bunch of, of skills. And one of the things they've got is they've got a uh, um, uh, what's the name for it? Not demeanor. A um, for Wraith, it's a. Uh, they, they've got like a psyche. They've got like that's a, right. Essentially, you know, it's their it, it's who they are. Their their, arch, their archetype. Their you know, it's, it's basically the you know the way that I explain it to people is that in the storyteller universe, the soul is breaking up broken up into a couple of different parts. One part of your soul is the shadow. That's the urge toward destruction. And oblivion. Mm-hmm. Another part is your psyche, which is your willpower embodied. Right. Um, and then finally, you have your your ab- your avatar, your your uh, erite, if you were a mage, the mm-hmm. higher self. Yes. Okay. So what happens is when you die, your higher self transcends and goes away. Yes. Um, and your Psyche becomes, you know, your willpower effectively becomes an embodied creature yes. that's tied to the world, to the real world, mm-hmm. through an attachment for whatever reason to a person, place, or thing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the example I use for, for people's shadow to get, to at least to explain to them to start with is um, for myself, I'm very fortunate that in terms of self-destruction, the closest I can get to tapping into what that might be about is if you go close to a cliff edge, right? Like that 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 feeling of of uh, of throwing of throwing yourself off, right? That's when uh, I like to say, you know, that's when the shadow bubbles as close to the surface for me as it gets. Now, some people are mm-hmm. far less fortunate to me to have other things going on in their lives or, or, or mental, mentally, um, mental challenges um, in their lives, but that's as close as I can. That's the best example I can use to, to give people a feeling for, for how that shadow psyche sort of willpower, as you say, goes to, together. But Well, I mean, you know, shadow, shadow comes up with a lot of different things. It's not just about the urge to jump off the cliff, although that is definitely, you've got it right there. But it's also, um, when I say self-destruction, I also mean from a very subtle point of view, um, you know, you're not, you forget to take your blood pressure medicine that morning. Mm -hmm. The shadow wins because what's happening is, you know, the shadow says, I want you to, I don't, I want you to just, let's just not take that today. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then tomorrow, let's not take that today. Yes. And so eventually your blood pressure gets higher and higher. You have a stroke and you die. Right, yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's like that whole, the analogy of the lobster put into the pot. You know, you slowly but surely turn, turn up the heat and yes. the lobster will not jump out of the pot. No. Um, so, I mean. It's insidious. It's also about fear. Yes. It's about jealousy. Yeah. It's about anger mm-hmm. or rage. It's about, I mean, any of those particular urges or feelings where that, that result in destruction or in people being driven apart instead of together. Yes. You know, anything that is a self, inherently selfish, destructive impulse can be attributed. I mean, you can attribute that to the shadow. Yeah. And and so as a player, you've got your um, you've got your sort of like what Sam says, you've got your your willpower, the willpower of you, your psyche, and then you've got an opposite of that, which is what your shadow is. Right. Your sh- well, your shadow is. I mean, it's kind of interesting because 
the, the shadow doesn't want to destroy you so quickly. No, that's right. Because it wants to grow and it wants to get more powerful as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, if you were to just, if you had a weak will, you wouldn't be a wraith. Because wraiths um, have to have a strong will to be able to stay in what they call the shadow lands. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to, in order to be able to stay close to the surface of reality, you have to have a strong will, and you have to have the, the fetters, which are these, like I said, people, places, or things that link you in to the real world. Yes. And that are important to you for whatever reason. You, don't, you may not know what they're, why they're important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may, you may have no idea. Yes. You just know that this one particular bus station is incredibly important to you. Yes. You don't remember. Maybe you don't remember why. Yes. Um, and that's and that's you know another part of the fun of Wraith is figuring out what your fetters mean. Yes. Um, there's a process called resolving your fetters where you get in there, you figure out what the fetter means to you, and then you resolve the issue that is attached to that fetter. Mm-hmm. Um, once you do that, you're less you you have a, le- a one less connection to the world, but you're closer to being able to transcend and leave this Shadowlands behind and effectively go, you know, on to the next life, whatever that is. Yes. You know, uh, go to the, I mean, it might be for Christians, it might be going to heaven. It might, for, for people who believe in reincarnation, it might be to be born again. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's up, it's really totally, I mean, we don't get into that. We, it's a big no, question yeah. mark. Yeah, sure. In, in race. Mm. But, um, and which is it's also very uh, interesting in that, you know, a lot of people were expecting death to tell them more about religion, and yes. it's and, and in Wraith, the answer is sorry, we we still don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You may be surprised to discover, but uh, yeah. people at yeah. White Wolf do not know more about what happens after you die than than you do. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but but the Wraiths don't know, and no, they, no, you know, sure. it's like well. <laughs> um, so, so how did the idea of having somebody else play your character come up? You know, that sort of putting your trust in somebody else at the table to make a good story using your character. I, I credit Jennifer Hartshorn with that. Right. Uh, you know, I can't exactly pinpoint the, the, the exact date and time. Me and, and Ian Lemke, Jennifer Hartshorn, um, and uh, Mark, you know, the the core group there came up with some of these uh, important things, but I, I just I I mean ultimately uh, the way that we do things at White Wolf, you can't really it's very difficult to point to one individual and say you're the, you're the one who did X or Y, right. but um, it was something that was very innovative and also was nearly edited out every single draft of the game. I mean, it was like it had to be fought over. I mean, it's a creative, expressive environment at White Wolf, and and it's kind of a pressure cooker. You have to be on your game. You have to be be ready to defend your ideas. If you don't defend your ideas back then, they would go by the wayside. Right. Um, So, I mean, there's not much room for shrinking violence in in this particular uh, game design area. Sure. Um, it's not as as mutual. There was not a lot of mutualism right. uh, back then. 
Uh, right now, you know, if Bill Bridges and Phil uh, Brucato came to me and said, we're designing a game, I would, you know, we need your help, or I'm design- we're designing a game, I would move heaven and earth to help them with whatever right. it is they wanted, because they're very good friends of mine, and we, I feel like we've been through the wars together. Right. But, I mean, and, and certainly um, the projects they've been in since then, I've been vocal about supporting. Right. It's but back in the day when we were all, you know, at White Wolf at the same time, we would all be very, there, there was a lot of uh, back and forth. There was a lot of back atches, you know, yes. uh, and struggles yes. with ideas. So it, it took, it, it took a, a, a really a miracle in the fact that Jennifer Hartshorn was the editor and she was, she, was in, she was the developer. She was responsible for what was finally in the book. She wanted it to be there. It was there. Right. <laughs> Good, excellent. Because I'm pleased that it was. For sure. He who he or she who sends the final um, file to the printer is the one who decides ultimately. Right, right. Um, and so for you, how did the shadow um, play as opposed to how it was played by by people you saw around the place, of writing in and, and talking about playing it? Did did many people decide not to use it um, because they didn't want to give up that agency, or did people sort of embrace it, or was it? Divisive. Well, I think you have different kinds of people playing Wraith. I mean, uh, one of the things, if you have people who are really into the the game for the game, they will play the game just like that. They'll play the game with the shadows in place. Everybody plays with somebody else's shadow. And they will remember to play the shadow. That's the big thing, really. Um, remembering to play the shadow of somebody else and not just pick on that person um, continuously, um, but actually remember to play that shadow. It's very difficult to do mm. um, because you've got a lot of other stuff going on. You've got your character to, to think about. You've got the person who's playing your shadow to think about. Yep. Um, so it can be a bit um, difficult to remember. Uh, and then you have people who just throw it out the window and say, Eh, every so often somebody will say, oh, by the way, I'll give you a couple of dice if you do this and then the other. Right, right. Um, and it's not a val- not really a valid part of the game for them. And that's okay if that's how they want to play. Yes. Um, it's just not, I mean, I don't think it's taking the full value of the game, of, of Wraith in, in, in the, into account. But, you know, I mean, one of the things about Wraith is that it's really, it takes a lot out of you. And you probably... If you if you found a group that would play, one of the best ways to play, play race, in my opinion, is to leave everything else out of it and just focus down on a personal story, right? And make it a mystery or make it a make it a thing where you know you, I mean, because you can make you can make things horrific without having legions of centurion ghosts and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. Right. Absolutely. Okay, and the uh, the last question about Wraith before we move on to, to Changeling um, mm-hmm. is with that sort of sharing of, of agency for a for a player and, and having that that level of trust. Um, is there anything sort of between Wraith and uh, the sort of the games that, as I say, that have been coming out in the last few years um, that sort of hit on that same sort of idea that you're aware of? Oh yeah, oh yeah, a lot of them. I mean. Um, I want to point at Polaris, right? Um, which has a tremendous amount. I mean, things change. Uh, 
the fo- when the focus change, everybody switches. Yes. Um, you know, don't rest your head. Yes. Is a huge example of that. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people who play with that agent, a lot of games that play with that agency. And of course, you know, any faith game uh, yes. plays with that kind of agency because characters, players can put aspects on a scene or on a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the bur- burning wheel of characters can, like a player can create um, game world stuff by like saying, I'm going to, I have circles for, I have a circle of thieves in this city. I want to look, I want to circle up somebody who can help me break into the Citadel. Right. Um, and suddenly there wasn't a character who could break into the Citadel before that. Now there is, and it's player generated. It's player agency. Right. Um, affecting the story. Right. So, I mean, what I'm saying is there's been, there, there have been a lot, a lot more, there have been a lot of games that play with that. Um, a lot of the scene setting games that you know about uh, mm. play with that too. Yes. Um, any, any GMless game plays with that. That's why I'm, I mentioned Don't Rest Your Head as a yes. GM. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah, that um, yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit better about my, my, my thought of, uh, the, of the, the actual impact without perhaps people knowing of, of Wraith on role playing subsequent to that, to its release, you know, like that, the number of, the, that, that a lot more designers perhaps than you might necessarily um, be immediately aware of were influenced by, by Wraith because of the shadow. I think, but anyway, I don't know if I'm going to get you right. to agree no. with me there. But <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, well, I mean, I know for a fact that there are people who have come up to me and said, "This game is a love letter to Wraith. This mm. game is a love letter to Wraith." Right. Um, Polaris is one of them. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, ultimately, I don't know if you know this, but there's this World of Darkness versus Indie meme right. uh, that exists. Not a meme in the sense of like, you know. Uh, can the cat have have a cheeseburger? But yeah. <laughs> it's more a, it's it's a meme like an idea that's been out there in the in the world. Um, and I went searching for this because I didn't realize that it actually existed. Right. Um, I didn't and I put a, a I went on the story games.com and I put a little note out there saying, "Hey, is there something on my face?" Uh, it was a it was a, a post. Is there something on my face? Right. Uh, which is a statement that. They when they when they um, talk about things on Knife Fight, which is like another website, right? It's just like you know, did I make a mistake somewhere along the line? Um, but is this true? Right. Um, so and and really, um, uh, you know, there are people like Vincent Baker. Mm-hmm. Vin, Vincent, I, I have been told Vincent hates the world of darkness. Right. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I just I, I just know that he was incredibly or or someone like him was incredibly angry at the fact that we called it a storytelling game. And yet there were very few mechanics driving, driving story. Exactly. Right. Um, and, and all I got to say to that is, is, you know, he's right. right. I mean, you know, until you get to Wraith and even then, you know, Wraith is, there's still chunks of Wraith that is kind of broken the way it works. It's not, you know, it's not it's not a finely tuned machine. Mm-hmm. It was designed to have a lot of hand waving 
know, <laughs> it's designed to have a lot of storyteller fiat. Yes. Um, and that's the sort of thing that can drive system matter people to drink. Yes. Is is a storyteller fiat. But I mean, if I trust you, Daniel, I'm going to sit down and play a storyteller game with you. Yes. I'm going to trust that you're going to use your fiat for good. Of course. Um, that's all I'm going to. I mean, that's what I'm going to. Or I'm not going to play World of Darkness with you. Yes, I, of that's course. just you know, that's just the way of it. Yes, for sure. And that's what you have to do. Yeah, I, I think that that um, I think that goes for any game really at, at all. But but I agree with the the story because we were, in the last uh, last time we spoke, I was talking about you know the first edition and the second edition of of Mage and how much you needed to sort of go well that's going to kind of work for the story. So let's go ahead and, and do that and and getting on board with playing the game like you say is is you know endorsing that that fiat as you, as you say. Mm-hmm. Okay, so after uh, after Wraith uh, came Changeling, and Changeling was ninety six. Well, it was released in ninety six, the uh, ninety five. Written in ninety four. Um, right. Okay, I'm a, I'm a year ahead of myself. Yeah, that uh, back in those days, it took a while for the for the games to reach New Zealand. So I'm gonna I'm gonna blame that. But yeah, okay, you know okay. far more about it than I do. So anyway, go ahead. So okay. so Wraith finished and. Did, did you find that the workplace was affected by what you guys were writing about? That's sort of something that I, I always wondered. I thought, I wonder when people were writing Wraith, whether it was, you know, did create a certain amount of darkness. I know there's the bit in the uh, in the back of the Wraith book talking about um, the various incidents associated with its, you know, the physical book's publication, um, mm-hmm. which I read. But did it also affect the um, the the workplace writing about that? that type of thing or was it just yes yeah yeah i mean it's if you focus on dark destructive awful things every day of your life for an entire year or yes. more yes you start to get to a point where it's just too much and you can't right. think about it anymore right. um we you know it was it was hell it was not a good time for me i never you know i it, it's not surprising that you know that's when the seeds of what would become my divorce started. Um, you know, that's it's not surprising that that's when my health went downhill for a while. Um, you know, it was a very depressing, very awful time. Right. Uh, uh, having said that, you know, the reason that Changeling had Changeling basically wrote itself. Yes. When we sat down with Changeling, it's like, okay, we got the darkness out of the way. Yes. And we're going to write what we want to write about fairies. Yes. And this is what we're going to do. And yes. we did it. And, and, you know, and it just like it flew out of our fingers. It was amazing. It was yes. just, it was the most amazing thing to be a part of it um, and to watch it unfold. Uh, and then to see that there were people who really got, who really found a lot of resonance with what we'd done. Yes. And picked it up and ran with it. Right. Uh, my my biggest regret is the uh, cantrip cards. Right. That were put out and they were just put out because uh, there was car you know marketing wanted cards. Yes. The 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 company wanted to have some kind of cards for something. Yes. They don't actually do anything and in, in Changeling Second Edition they were totally uh, ripped out. Right. Uh, I would not even play Changeling First Edition with cards. I just wouldn't ever do it. Right. Um, so, uh, and I, you know, there are there are some, and, and the only other regret I have about Changeling is satyrs. I I don't. I 
<laughs> I, I, and I say this because I know that there are tons of female gamers out there who love female satyrs. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm glad you love them. Mm-hmm. But a satyr is a male character. Yes. To me. Yes. Um, you know, and female satyr is, well, it's just, <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't mythologically speak to me, but I was totally overruled. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, there's a lot of people who love them. Uh, yeah, and, sure. And, and I, and I have no problem with the fact that they love them. Yes. And I just go on. Yeah, but sure. if, if you notice, I'll, if you notice, if you play, if you play Changeling with me, you'll you'll probably never see any female satyrs no. running around. Yeah, and that's a hard that's a hard thing. I mean, obviously, it's hard for uh, for you um, even now, sort of thinking thinking back on it. But um, being in that situation where you have to make a where you have to make a choice, and on the face of it, it looks like it might be about inclusiveness, but in actual fact, it's about integrity. And I, um, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but that's I don't know. I mean, well, okay, here's the thing. We had the Black Furies werewolf tribe, mm-hmm. all female, yes. except for some male half-breed, you know, Metis characters. Sure. Yes. They were all females. Yes. That's fine. Okay? I have no problem with that. Yes. I was happy to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I have no problem with you know the fact that there are subcultures of women who want to be women with other women and they don't want any men around. Yep, and that's okay with me. Yes. So the question then comes down to, to for me for satyrs, why couldn't that be the same thing for satyrs and men? Yes. You know, yep. I mean, okay, the satyr has some feminine aspects. Yes. By uh, in classical mythology. Yes. Um, big, you know, I, I, I think of satyrs with big lips, mm-hmm. you know, and and wild, you know, passionate uh, natures. Yes. Um, sensual natures, even. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so and I don't, and and it could have very well been. Also tied in, just like the Black Furies are tied into the uh, real life uh, lesbian community. Yes, it, you know if you re- if you read the Black Furies tribe book, there's a, a lot of feminist, lesbian, separatist, yes, uh, you know, uh, things in that. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't we have done that with you know with the, the satyrs? You know, yes, I'm just saying. You know, why couldn't there have they, there could have been? Yes, but. But it's not. It did not happen that way, yeah. and that's okay. I I have no problem with it. Um, it's just that, you know, I have no problem with it because it. People have taken it and they've enjoyed it and they like it. But if you know, if somebody came to me and said, "Sam, we're going to do Changeling again. Can we? Do you want to get rid of female satyrs?" I'd be like, "Yes." <laughs> with all my heart yes yeah yes absolutely th- <laughs> can we just have one all male tribe and maybe they're all gay male that's you know right. and yeah, that's yeah. it's possible that that's the case and yeah, if yeah. they are okay you yes. know um i, I you know uh, uh, satyrs are satyrs yeah. what can be said <laughs> so the, the uh the, the female the female version of a satyr is called a nymph right there you go well, there you go, and and they 
they look like you know wood spirits and you know nature spirits with right. female form. Right. That uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I'm uh, yeah. I was I was wondering whether you know it was a huge relief to write um, Changeling after having written Wraith. Absolutely, it was an incredibly uh, incredibly good thing to have a little hope. There was a secret cabal of designers and writers at that time called the World of Mostly Dimness Cabal. Right. right. Um, me, Ian, Jennifer, to a certain extent, uh, uh, um, Jackie Cassida, Nikki Ray, um, Harry Heckle, um, people like that. And all, all of us were, you know, interested in sort of having a little bit of hope injected into the storyline um, and not making everything so utterly uber dark that, you know, there was destruction and death everywhere. And we were so tired of that kind of, you know, oblivion, destruction, death, nasty, evil, that, you know, we, we just, we didn't want to dwell on it anymore. Hmm. Having said that, there a lot of people say to me, well, Changeling the Dreaming is not dark enough. Yeah, sure. I and, you know, they, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, well, I, I really disagree. A lot of, a lot of it has to do with how you're playing it. Mm. Um, but, and there's a lot of, I mean, there's red caps in the book. Mm. You know, there are people who, red caps who, who can literally eat anything. Yes. Can chop, it can eat your arm off, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's that's pretty dark, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are, and then uh, furthermore, there's this thing where you know, um, uh, I mean, you, you can get into the dark side of the fairy tales very easily with Changeling, but you know, we did not highlight it in the text, we did not highlight it in the art, right? Um, so on its face, yeah, it's not as dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I think I have not ever read Changeling the Lost, but I, I can tell, I can, I've been told it's darker. Yeah, well, just the title alone, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's darker. That's great. Yeah. All right. But it's not what we wanted back then. No, sure. Absolutely. Um, and so Changeling, I'm, I'm least familiar with Changeling of all of the, of all of the books, but um, what was what came out after uh, after Changeling? I have no idea. That's when I left the yeah, company. Was, yes, uh, yes. You know, I went on to uh, to join a uh, group that was doing PDFs. Yes, you were uh, saying yes. Starting out PDFs, and then I started working for um, as a freelancer for Fading Suns. Right. I wrote a lot of Fading Sun stuff. I wrote I wrote some stuff for um, a nominee. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in, uh, in fact, if you read some nominated stuff, it, it starts to sound a little white wolfy, uh, right. because because that's what and that's kind of what they wanted. Yes. Although I did a, um, I was contracted to write a very large piece about heaven. Yes. Uh, for nominee, and it was not Christian enough for them. They wanted I, I, I had more of a Unitarian Universalist heaven of. Mm-hmm. You know, it was sort of the the idea of who was, you know, what religious mythology held sway was sort of still left up to the storyteller. Right. And they didn't like that. Right. Um, so they paid me a kill fee, and I actually have that PDF up on my site for free. Oh, there you uh, go. 
if you want to download it. Yep. But, uh, at any rate, so yeah, I don't know what came out after that. Uh, I know that I was asked to write for Dark Magic 2 uh, a little bit later, Bill, Bill Bridges, and I wrote the Australia Aboriginal part of that, and that was a lot of fun. Yes. I did a huge amount of research and tried to make because when you go, when Bill Bridges asks you to do something, he is a scholar of, of indigenous uh, legends and, and societies. And so, you know, he wants you to bring all of the research you can to bear. And he wants you to make it as authentic as you possibly can yes. make it. Yes. So yeah. that's, that's why I spent a lot of time researching. And when, once I was done with my research, it kind of wrote itself. Right. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for giving us the uh, the background of, of both of those games, and indeed of the uh, of the early days of, of White Wolf. It's been uh, it's been really exciting. And the, the last question I'm going to um, well I'll leave on is, um, what do you know about the Mage Twentieth Edition um, Kickstarter? Well, I've heard that uh, Phil Brucato is basically writing the whole thing from soup to nuts. Right. Two hundred thirty-eight thousand words, or something like that. Right. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, Phil. <laughs> I know he can do it. He's an incredibly prolific writer. Um, and I, I know that he can do it. But I just I cannot believe that uh, he's taking the lion's share of the work for himself. But I think that probably when you think about the fact that when you take a number of different um, voices, a number of different writers... Yes. And uh, you're given, you split that up into a bunch of different, like say, fifty thousand words a piece. Yes. And coming back and trying to meld all that so it makes sense mm. is very difficult. So he's just saving himself development time, right? <laughs> in large, in large part. Right. Um, but I'm excited that it's happening. I think it's going to be wonderful to see the book in print. Um, I'm I'm very happy that Kickstarter exists so that we can have these kind of things. I'm hoping that they do Kickstarter changeling at least. Yes. I, I don't know that they'll do a chick, uh, Kickstarter Wraith because Wraith uh, just never was that popular. Right. That uh, you know I was able to tell. I, I didn't, never got to see any sales figures after I left the company, so right. I didn't know how well Wraith sold. But from what I hear and what I can see based on what lines were canceled and that sort of thing, it tells me yeah you know it probably didn't do that well. And that's a shame. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Chup. Thank you. That's it for episode 50 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. So until next week, keep talking the walk. <laughs>